mi gente, welcome to Peruvians of USA, the podcast where we share the diversity of the Peruvian immigrant experience. This is your host, Natalie Sofia, and this community was born from the need to create a space for Peruvian immigrants to come together, to support each other, to learn from each other, and to document our stories. The stories our guests share with us are deeply personal and paint a new portrait of what it means to be a Peruvian immigrant. I hope you receive these stories with an open heart and an open mind. So let's get started. If something resonates with you while enjoying our conversation, please be sure to share with us in social media using the hashtag Peruvians of USA. All right, here's our conversation. Before we get started on this episode, remember the information provided in and throughout this episode, website, programs, products, and services is for educational and informational purposes only, and is made available to you as a self-help tool for your own use. By listening to this episode or using any of our products or services, you understand that you're not guaranteed any monetary compensation from Peruvians of USA or any other company mentioned in this episode. The information contained on this episode, website, programs, or services is not intended to be substitute for legal or financial advice that can be provided by your own attorney, accountant, or financial advisor. And with that, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome, Andrea Ramos, to Peruvians of USA. Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation, this money conversation, where we will talk about the importance of investing for retirement, for ourselves, how to help our parents in retirement, and also other financial lessons that we really didn't learn from anybody because many of us are first gen and are really just navigating the streets on our own. So thank you so much. And then I please introduce yourself to our audience. Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Andrea Ramos. I am a money coach and I was born in Lima, Peru. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited to be here. I love talking about money and it's so it's so cool that they're, you know, you've kind of um, built this community around like our our people, right? Like Peruvians. And so, yeah, I'm just excited to to broaden um, just even like the conversation about money, things about money, because I think ultimately information understood in a way that, you know, feels doable is then becomes empowering. And what better thing to do than like empower our own community. So yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> so many uh, members of our community have misconceptions of money. It's not something that's talked about at home. We have this, we have the belief that money is a root of all evil. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Being on Viciosa is not seen as like something positive or like talking about money, caring about money. And that's something that I actually have experienced in my own household when I'm trying to entertain. Like I, I like to say that I'm a financial literacy advocate. I like, to, I want people to educate themselves on this topic because I think it's so important. But you know, I've outside eyes. <laughs> yeah. Family. But tell us, what is your money story? How did you get started? Why did you get started? Like, what was that journey like for you? Yeah, so for me, it started really kind of when I graduated college. So I graduated college in 2013, yes. Um, and at the time, I got a job offer, but I was like, mm, I don't want to do that. Let me just say no. And like I kind of put my eggs in one basket and I was like, I'm going to get this job. This is it. I'm not applying to anybody else. And then that didn't work out. And so like two days before graduation, I was like, I cannot graduate without a job. I had a lot of meaning behind that, right? Like my parents brought me here and I'm, I'm a college graduate. I have to graduate with a job. And so I just was like, I need to find something. So I met with this business owner in the town that my college was at. 
And I was like, I pre- pretty much pitched myself. And he's like, sure, come work for my company. It's a small company. And I was like, great, awesome. I accepted his job, did not ask the salary. And I just was like, cool, have a job. Let me walk across the stage at graduation and then I'll kind of deal with it later. So after the fact, I'm like a week before I started, I was like, hey, by the way, like how much am I making um, so that I can budget? And he was like, oh, it's $22,000 a year. And I was like, that feels low. (laughs) But I was like, okay, uh, I'll figure it out. So knowing that I was like, all right, I need to sublease from someone because it was still, I still was living in a college town. So I was very easily and doable. Luckily I found somebody who um, let me sublease for like $200 a month. So instantly I was like, all right, I feel like I'll be able to make this work. Let me just get out there and figure it out. So that was kind of the start of my money journey in the sense that I had to really, I was kind of like forced to think about my finances. Like I couldn't just not. And so I started and, you know, At that time, I kind of created a system where like as soon as I got paid, I would immediately split my money into like bills, savings, and like things like money I could actually spend. And at the time, my goal was, all right, I want to like save $10,000 so that I can move to California. And that's the goal. I don't know why (laughs) $10,000. I just faked it. And I'm not really sure California. I think it like it was just like the the place to go. So I was like, those two places, that's it. I'm starting. So then I got really serious about like just budgeting, figuring that out. Um, and I started learning more about like just general budgeting and saving. I, I really took that time to strengthen the muscle of saving. Um, and so there would be times where I would split up my money and I would see like I only have $200 left until my next paycheck. And so this $200 is essentially got to cover me for groceries, gas, and then like maybe something fun here and there, like eating out and stuff. So for the longest time, like I just kind of did that plan. Now, in retrospect, I probably should have like thought through how do I earn more? But I think I was just so like fixated on this is this is working. My, my savings is growing. Let me just stick to doing that. Um, so I did that for a while. And after 18 months, I had saved about $8,000. And so it was like a really like, it was a moment where I was like, wait a second, how did I do that? And I got really scrappy. Like I would sell things or people give me birthday money. I just saved everything. Like it, it, in retrospect, it's like, you probably should have looked for a higher paying job, Andrea. But I was like, no, I'm focused and I'm doing this and I'm staying here. And yeah, there's a lot of other things there. Um, but, but yeah, so that was kind of like the first money achievement that made me realize like, oh, it, yes, like it does matter how much you earn, but also like having a system and having a really compelling goal can really help you get resourceful, think about things and, you know, start building towards a goal that you're wanting. And then after that job, I got a um, job that paid me, I think double, I ended up doubling my salary, like overnight, Um, not overnight. After like two years, I did an unpaid internship with that. I kind of just did that for a year, but then, um, a couple of years later, yeah, I essentially kind of doubled my income. And that felt like so big, right? Because if you you double your income, it feels like a lot. And so my thought at the moment was like, oh, I don't need to budget anymore. Like I don't need to do that. So I won't. And so then I just started earning and spending and saving if I could and paying my bills and, you know, kind of just going through this like just cycle of paycheck to paycheck. 
And um, it wasn't until a couple of years in that I realized like, oh my gosh, like I'm making around like 40, 39, $40,000 a year and I only have $2,000 saved. And that was another moment where I was like, how did this happen? Like I was making a lot less and saved more and now I'm making more and I have saved less. And so that was like a pivotal moment. I didn't actually do anything with that until like two or like a year or two later, um, where I ended up going to a uh, financial peace university class. It's like this um, course that's ran by Dave Ramsey. And my friend recommended it to me. He was like, you should go. And I was like, no, 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 I know how to budget. And I was still kind of like almost in denial. Like I was like, I know how to do that, but I wasn't doing any of it. Like I wasn't budgeting, I wasn't saving. And so he was like, no, you should go. Like you'll learn a lot of things. You'll learn about life insurance and adult things and taxes and just things that people will tell you that are actually really good to know. And I was like, okay, sure. So I went and after the first two classes, like I did like a 180 on my finances. I was like, what have I been doing? Like, have I really even been paying attention here? And so I kind of like flipped that really quick and but got back on track because I the skills are were there. I think I just forgot about them or stopped paying attention. And I was like, oh, I don't need to do this, which is like kind of the sneaky thought that made me, you know, not pay attention. Um, so then I kept going back to that class and it was great information wise, but it was a little bit like the message was just a little intense for me. Um, everybody delivers their message differently. And so I think his style is just very direct, abrasive and a little sharp. And I was like, oh man, like this is tough. Like even for me to listen to, like, I don't even want to receive it, but I know that it's good, but you're like yelling at me. And so that was when I was like, ah, this is like, um, this, this is a bummer if somebody doesn't pay attention to you because they feel attacked. Like your message is so great about financial literacy, but, um, it's getting lost in like the way that you deliver it. And that was my thought. And then I was like, maybe I could like talk about this in a different way in an empowering way for women and to like help them see it as like a tool and a resource. I was like, no, I can't do that. And then I just kind of forgot about it. Um, but then a couple of months later, it kept like being something that I thought about. And so that's when I was like, I really want to do this. Like, I just want to talk to my friends and my family about money. Like, I think it is such a powerful tool that when used like in a way that feels, you know, where you feel confident and empowered can really help you create a like life that you love and enjoy. And, and just even the way that you experience your day to day with money can create such a positive impact on your life. And so, yeah, then I just switched my Instagram to, hey guys, I'm gonna be talking about money. <laughs> that, that eventually turned into like now my business, which is building GenWealth. So that's my money story. <laughs> I like the point that you made that not every financial person out there talking in social media is willing to speak to you. And you've got to find somebody who speaks to the way you learn. And not everybody learns the same way. Some like tough love and this is what it is and do this. Not all of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all that. We want things a lot, somebody to be a, perhaps more understanding of our own background. Like we are a different background than maybe most of his audience. So if he doesn't have that whole context of our culture, it's, it can be discouraging, right? So for people to be like, oh my God, now I have to, where do I even start? <laughs> That's a big question. A lot of people like, how did you even start? So you said like you were making around $22,000, which I think is below poverty, to be honest. Like, yeah. 
So yeah, you did not have the luxury to not look at it, but yet so many of us still refuse to look at our finances, right? So what what is the starting point? Let's say there's a member in the audience who's like, all right, I'm making X amount, right? Let's assume it's not a six figure. Where do I even start to get a picture of where I'm at? And then, yeah. And then how to determine maybe the next step after that? Yeah. So I would say, man, it was, I would say it's like 1A and 1B. <laughs> so 1A, I would say is you really have to like intentionally disconnect the meaning that you are assigning your current money situation. I think for me at the time, the meaning I was assigning was I failed. Like I failed my parents. I failed just at all of this because my income was so low. And so I kept it a secret. I didn't tell anyone. And so I built and saved from a place of like, I need to catch up. And that wasn't the best thing. Like the result was still great in the sense that I saved, but I I didn't create a safe money experience. And so looking back, I think the first thing that I would have done is like, how do I get to a point where I can start feeling safe with money? Because when you feel safe and like at peace with your finances and and accept that like you're going to keep, you know, growing and getting better and earning more, um, the experience and how you build wealth actually is going to be more fruitful and more, more enjoyable, more joyful. So that would be the first thing is more of like a mindset of like, how do I give myself compassion and grace for where I'm at and not shame myself or not, you know, just create a negative experience in, in your own inner walls. The second thing that I did, um, or the, the, the practical uh, thing that I did, um, like actionable was I like, I got a piece of paper out and I wrote down all of my bills. I was like, all right, what do I owe? I had 200 for rent, this for this. And I just wrote it all down. And I was like, okay, that ends up being about, um, I can't remember the math, but it was like less than I was making. So I was like, okay, I can at least cover my bills. And then I was like, what else is absolutely necessary? Groceries and gas. So this is where I was like, all right, how, I, like at this point, I was still trying to learn, like how much does it take to feed myself? Like when my parents are buying me groceries. So I kind of just, you know, played around with those numbers for the first month. I don't think I saved anything. And then once I saw the rhythm of like, okay, this is how much I'm spending. This is how much I'm spending for gas and groceries. I built that in. And then I was like, okay, I have about $400, $300 left over every month, like put away to save. And so when I got those monthly bills, like let's say, for example, um, I was bringing home $1,400. Let's say $1,000 went to my bills uh 200 went to my groceries and gas and then like the other 200 went to my goals so i once i got those monthly numbers then i knew okay half of that every paycheck has to go into a different account so then i just like opened a checking account that i labeled bills account i had my like normal checking account that i would spend from and then i had my savings account and as soon as i got paid like this was the first thing i did i would send over 500 to my bills account cuz i knew that those my bills were going to be taken from there. I kept 200 in my checking and then I send 200 into my savings. And so I just got really good at like, as soon as the money dropped, I would separate it. And so now there was no question of like, what do I spend? Is this, can I spend this? And then like a bill comes and I'm like, oh, I, I wasn't supposed to spend that. Let me put it on a credit. Like I got really good at just spending the cash that I had on hand. Um, so I think if you're starting, I would say the first place to start is, is like, go ahead and write your bills and then like 
figure out how much your gas and your groceries are every month. Um, and then kind of see the difference that you have from what you're bringing in as like the first and then like practice sticking to those. Yeah. You're not going to get it right at the beginning. And that's what you have to your point. Give yourself compassion. Give yourself praise and practice those, those, those skills and practice those habits. And, and it takes time, right? Especially if you have not grown up in a way where money was talked about, where money habits were talked about or encouraged in you. So I think that's, that's great. And you mentioned a couple of times, like you say, were you invested during this time or was it strictly saving? This was strictly saving. So this is another interesting story. I was really into like budgeting and saving and learning about that. And then I was like, oh, I should learn about investing. Let me research the best investing book. And one of the books that was recommended that came up that everybody recommended was I Will Teach You to Be Rich by Ramith Sethi. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to buy this. So I put it in my Amazon cart and I was about to check out. And then the thought that came to my mind was you share this Amazon account with people. They're going to see that you're buying a book titled I Will Teach You to Be Rich. And that's bad. Like you, people are going to think you want to be rich. That's like a bad thing. And so I was like, oh. So I took the book out of the cart and I didn't buy it, which is so crazy. It's such a defining moment. And I think I just was like a money mindset thing. Like I, I was, I associated rich with like bad and like, you know, and so I, yeah, I didn't buy it. And so I, all I did was save up until like my late twenties, but looking back, I'm like, oh man, if I had read that book and I was already kind of like in this, like you know, eagerness to learn, like how much more would I have like, you know, started investing and done. Um, but it's okay. <laughs> I also recommend that book to everyone that I know is written in a funny way. He's very funny and direct. He gives you sort of like scripts to lower some of your bills. He's very low effort. This is what you can do. You don't have to understand the whole market and everything to start investing. And it's up to you. I didn't do much investing until like my late 20s because I didn't know and 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 there's that fear of investing so now we're talking about savings and investing and some people might be like what that what's the difference right main difference between saving and investing so how would you explain that to someone so saving I would say it's just putting money away in a bank account or uh like a savings account it's intentionally designed for it to sit there and grow but it grows at the pace that you put it in investing it's you're doing the same like thing as 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 in like you're putting money in account and it's growing because it's um growing at the pace that you put it in but when you invest your money grows in addition to how much you're actually putting in right so um, investing is a, an intentional way of having your money grow and work for you by exchanging it to buy like assets. And, and you're, the point of that is to see a more of a return than what you actually put in there. When you're saving, you're only going to have what you put in there. So that's what I would say is the biggest difference. People will interchange saving for retirement and investing for retirement. And I think that the it's like, yes, I get what you're saying, but they really are investing for retirement, but they're the practice of saving is like kind of convoluted in there, but yeah, it's investing for retirement. And I, and I think what key point that you mentioned is with investing, you are buying an asset. You're buying an asset that is going to grow in value and someone else will buy it from you at a higher price. And that's how you make money. 
So once it's kind of like real estate, you want to think about it a little bit like that, but there's a whole different topic. One uh, thing I like to share, like as an example, is for example, my brother, he's into shoes and Nike shoes, limited shoes. I don't, I don't know any. That's like a big business. People make money doing that. Anything about shoes. So, like, if anybody out there is listening to me, like, I apologize if what I'm saying is not the right terminology, but like, you'll get like a Nike shoe that's limited edition that's only X amount, like five of them made or something. So, he's buying that at, let's say, $1,000, right? He's buying that. He's investing, quote unquote, investing in the shoe that currently is $1,000 with the expectation that. Is going to grow in value because it's so coveted by other people. Mm-hmm. So then he sells on eBay or whatever. I don't know where he sells that. <laughs> and people will say, I'll give you $2,000 for that. And so he just made $1,000, right? In that. And, and so that that's an example of investing. The, the opposite, or not the opposite, but like savings would be if he would have just put that um, $1,000 into a piggy bank and then mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Like, nobody's going to give him money for having money there, right? But like he bought an asset, that asset grew in value, and now he can get that money back by selling that asset. And so I just wanted to give that sort of analogy for folks. Yeah. Because it is different. It is different to invest and save. And when you send, have your money work for you, that's what we mean. The value of the asset you just purchased grew in value, right? And that's not about you doing anything. Yeah. yeah. Like you do it. He didn't do anything to make this shoe more valuable to the market. Like the market just automatically was like, I think the shoe's valuable. I don't personally. But, <laughs> <laughs> but like somebody thought this shoe part valuable. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So, um, so, so some of the focus for this conversation was around retirement and investing for retirement. So people say savings don't really mean investing. What are some of the ways we can start investing for retirement? For ourselves, and then I don't later probably we'll talk about our parents, but that's a different worry that we have, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I think the first uh, place that most people start investing for retirement is through their employer's 401k. So a 401k, a lot of times it's thrown out, and you're like, "What in the world is that?" Like I knew in in um, when I was a senior in college that that was a thing. Like I know that like before like. 1k is a thing that I get with a job. I don't know what it is, but I just know people are saying these letters and numbers. So essentially what this is, is it's just an account. So very similar to how you have a savings account or a checking account from a bank. A 401k is an investing account. It's an account that allows you to invest inside of that account. And 401k specifically are provided by employers because they're employer sponsored or kind of, um, you know, like there's like, you would only get if you had an employer. Um, And so the way that this works is that you you get your job, you have your nine to five and you uh, enroll for their program, their 401k program. And when you do that, now what essentially happens is you contribute money from your paycheck into this account every time that you get paid, which is great because it's almost kind of like set on autopilot. You don't have to think about it you know, like paying a bill. It just happens even before you notice. So this is a great way to get started. Um, 
a lot of times you're auto enrolled. Like if you, you know, accept a job and it comes with a 401k package, it's auto and you just get auto enrolled into it. Other times you have to set it up. So depending on your employer, just always double check with your HR representative. Hey, am I enrolled? Am I contributing to my 401k? Um, and so that would be like the first place to start. Um, with investing for retirement, one of the biggest perks with the 401k is that you are offered an employer match. So let's say you contribute like $50 per paycheck, your employer will also contribute $50 per paycheck. Now it's up to a percentage of how much you earn. So you just kind of want to note what that is for you specifically, but that's a great way to get going with that. Um, but if you have worked for jobs that don't offer a 401k, which is my experience, I've never worked for a job that's offered a 401k. Just wanted to take a break here to share that Peruvians of USA now has an online store. Help us spread the message that El Mejor Amigo de Un Peruano es Otro Peruano by visiting our online store. We also have feminine versions that said La Mejor Amiga de Una Peruana es Otra Peruana or gender neutral versions. This could be the perfect gift for a Peruvian in your life. Visit the link on the episode notes or link in bio. All right, back to the episode. The option that you have is to open a Roth IRA. A Roth IRA is another type of investing account. So the thing with investing accounts is we don't call them investing accounts because they're different types of investing accounts. So um, whereas a checking account and a savings account are just checking and savings account, investing accounts have different names. But just know that like a 401k is an investing account. A Roth IRA is an investing account. And a Roth IRA is also... Um, an investing account specifically that allows you to uh, invest and save for retirement. And so same thing here. Now with a Roth IRA, um, this account is a little bit different in that nobody sets it up for you. So you have to like go out and open the account um, through a uh, discount broker or through another, like an investing broker. Um, an investing broker is just kind of like the financial institution that like allows you to open that investing account. So very similar, like let me like kind of draw a similarity here. Like a bank has two accounts that they offer people, a checking and a savings account. A discount broker or an investing broker has investing accounts that they offer people. So it's just, it's a little bit different in the sense that we're not familiar with the language because it's not as common as like, you know, walking into a bank, but it's essentially the same thing. Like you go to this financial institution and open that account. Um, so you would go to a discount broker, um, open a Roth IRA investing account, and then start contributing money and actually buy the assets that you want. There's a 401k that our employers could offer to us and that all employers offer them. So make sure if you for you, whatever company you're working for, you check if it's listing offers. Um, and then you also talked about that some employers do a matching. Why is it important to ensure that we contribute up to whatever our employer matches? So, and the reason I asked this question is because I had a cousin who recently asked me or informed me as we were talking about money that she got a new job and that she set up her 401k and that her company matches up to 5%, but she's only doing 3%. And I was like, no, you need to do the 5%. At least contribute 5% of your paycheck. And she didn't understand why. So tell us, why was that? What, what was wrong with her only doing 3% instead of 5%? Yeah, so 
investing up to the match is essentially you just reaping all of the benefits uh, of of that perk that you're given. So for her, she could only contribute 3% of her income and then she'll be matched with another 3%. But if she contributed five, she'd be matched with a 5%. So it's essentially like in the investing world, like when you are investing, like your average rate of return is going to be like 10%. Like that like that's just like uh, uh, the amount of which like the stock market grows traditionally over like a 10 year span. And I say this because if you're like average growth is 10%, when you're talking about an employer match, if you, if employer is matching your contribution dollar for dollar, you're essentially getting a 100% return, right? Like I put in a dollar, you put in a dollar. And so for like her particular case, it's like, why not maximize how much one you're contributing and then how much your employer can contribute. So it's almost like you're doubling up in your contributions. So you want to make the most out of that because it's the only scenario in the financial world in which your money will actually duplicate as opposed to just like growing incrementally. Yeah. And that that's a good point. It's a hundred percent return, right? That you the way I remember mentioning it to her was that you're leaving money on the table. Like your employer's telling you, Hey, I'm willing to give you more money to put into your retirement, but you have to you have to put the same amount. And my partner's saying, No, I'm only gonna put three percent. You're you're basically saying, No, no job, don't like employer, don't give me more money. Most like um like if you're fundraising and their donor says, I'll match all the dollars. And so then you're like, okay, I can give $50, but if I give $55, then they're giving $55, which means now. So it's like the same concept. Like it might feel like, oh, but I don't want to give more, but it's like, but why wouldn't you? Because then you're in this scenario, it's like all of that is actually going back to you as opposed to like, you know, another organization or a third party uh, entity. So it's like, yeah, kind of the same concept there. Yeah. I think that um, a lot of us, and, and I don't know if this is the case for everybody, but I know when I started my first job out of college, I wasn't even going to sign up for the 401k because I was like, they're taking my money. I don't know where it's going. I don't know what this 401k is. Help me, right? In college, what this is. And I remember one of my friends um, was like, hey, you're just going to, you're starting a new job. Make sure you contribute to your 401k. He just said it without much explanation. I didn't ask any follows, but I trusted his advice. And I'd be like, okay, she told me to do it. Fine, I'll fill out the form or whatever I had to fill out. And I remember being like, I'm just going to contribute 1% because they're taking my money. And so, <laughs> and that's how I remember nearly taking my money. But I think we need to reframe that thought. Yeah, because your employer is not taking your money. It feels like it because it's deducted from your paycheck, mm-hmm. going into an account, and that money will always belong to you. And yeah, each employers, you can take that 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 those funds with you, right? So, um, I just wanted to share that little anecdote because I just remember vividly being like, I'm just only going to give them one percent. <laughs> Yeah. Anybody. <laughs> and it's like, it, it really, is, it was just, it was yours. It was your 1% that you were contributing to you. But that is so interesting. It does, it does kind of feel like it's being taken from me, but it's like, no, it's still, it's always yours. Like your money that you contribute is always yours. Um, but yeah, thinking about it in a different way definitely okay. will help. 
Yeah. You also mentioned the Roth IRA and how the 401k and the Roth IRA are both invest, investment accounts. And the reason they're called, just to give more context again, the reason they're called something different is because they're just regulations and contribution limits that the government places on them just that are different. So that's really why they're so, like, they're called different things. But I guess one thing I wanted you to talk about a little bit is the, I'll start with an anecdote, an anecdote of a friend who opened a Roth and was diligently contributing to a Roth, but her money was not growing. And it'd been like 10 years and her money was pretty much almost the same, maybe a little bit more. And it wasn't because it wasn't really invested. And so WTF. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, like you just said, it was an investment account, but it wasn't invested. So that can be confusing to call. Mm. Like, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. Okay. So the way that I like to explain this is um, when your money, like, kind of, I always go back to like a checking and a savings account because those are things that people are very familiar with. So if I like draw analogies, I think it's like easier to understand. So with your savings and your checking account, you like put in money, right? Like whether you deposit it or like money comes into those account and then just sits there as cash. Like they're literal numbers that you like log onto your app, mobile app or whatever and see. And so that's like cash that you have. Now with a uh, investing account, like a Roth IRA or, or particularly we're talking about the Roth IRA, when you contribute money into that investing account, it lands in what is called like a core position. And I like to call this like, I just imagine like it's like a landing strip where it just sits as like cash, like a, a cash type asset, but it's not actually invested until you take it out of that like space and like buy money with it, which can be a little tricky to think about because you're like, what are you talking about, about space? But you just want to like think about it that way. Think about your uh, Roth IRA is like an account, which is like a room. And then when money comes into that room, it lands on this table. And that table is like your core position. And that's like the cash that you have readily available to invest. And so then you say, okay, I'm going to take some of the money from this table and actually buy an index fund. So you take the money, purchase the index fund, and now you have an index fund like sitting in your room. <laughs> so separate it and compartmentalize it like that because then it it helps you see like, oh, okay, so the goal is to put money into to this Roth IRA room. It's going to land in this table, but I actually have to take it from this table and buy those assets because your friend just had it all sitting in this table, which essentially is like doing the same thing as a, a savings account. So it didn't really actually work because there was no in asset that was bought. Yeah. And I think that's key what you just said. There was no asset that was bought. Like when you're investing, just think about it. What asset am I buying? So you can say, I have my money in 401k. But when somebody asks you, what are you investing on? Or like you have your money in a Roth IRA. What are you investing on? You're not invested in a Roth IRA. That's not a thing. It's just an account. Mm -hmm. they, like going back to the, not, the story about my brother who sells shoes. It's like my brother giving money to Nike and being like, I want a shoe. Nike being like, okay, what kind of shoe? <laughs> right. So it's, so you have to identify what's the asset that you are investing in. And so going back to discount broker, just like, now these are some terminologies that can scare people. And I don't want the audience to be scared. This is just all, you know, the financial service industry can make things complicated. 
for their own benefit. Like the more complicated it sounds, the more likely you'll hire somebody and bang <laughs> to yeah. explain it to you, right? So um, we, most of us are bilingual. We have to learn English. So we obviously have the skills to learn a new language. So I want to encourage the audience not to be afraid of these. Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> you can learn this. <laughs> You've done yeah. it. Um, and so dip down broker, uh, tell us what are some examples of this broker? And, um, you mentioned kind of like a bank, but I guess give us some like, um, top discount brokers out there that we can consider. Yeah. So discount broker is like essentially a financial institution that allows you to open investing accounts. Those investing accounts can be a Roth IRA, a traditional IRA, et cetera, et cetera. Um, some of the most popular ones that I recommend and that I have accounts with are Fidelity, Vanguard, Charles and Schwab, E-Trade. There's a whole ton. So this can also be an, an overwhelming thing when you're like, which one do I pick? And I think uh, a lot of the times we are so conditioned to find the right one. And this is a situation where there is no right one. There's just the one that you decide and that you want to go, you know, open with and that gets to be it. Um, but some things to look for are, uh, you know, do they have good customer service? Um, are they, do, do the assets that they offer, um, are they lower cost? Um, and so kind of having a little bit more of an understanding of like what's high cost, what's low cost. Um, but for the most part, Fidelity, Vanguard, and Charles and Schwab have ranked in like high customer service, low, uh, low cost to invest, um, do, you know, platforms that are easily easier for people to navigate. So if you're looking to get started and you're like, hey, I don't know where to start, I would recommend at least like starting to look there to see if those companies line up with like what you're what you're looking for. Yeah. One of the things that when I was learning about investing and thinking about opening a Roth IRA a couple of years ago was like people were like low cost, low cost, low cost. And I was like, why am I paying to invest to give them my money, right? And what is considered low low cost? I don't see like like a fee, you know, on, on whatever page I'm looking at. So one question is like, why am I paying to give them my money to invest? And then second what is considered low cost? Yeah. So investing isn't actually free. Like, uh, I can't even say that because now Fidelity has like these zero funds, but for the most part, invest investing isn't completely free. There is like some costs that you do pay. Now those are going to be low on the lower end or on the higher end. Um, so the reason that you pay is because when you buy an asset, like let's say you buy a mutual fund. This is an asset where it's essentially just think about like a basket of stocks. Now, in order for somebody to like organize that basket of stocks and manage that basket of stocks, like it does take like time and effort. And so we do pay that person for like managing that investment particularly. So you're always going to have to do some level of like contributing to someone, you know, working and managing that asset. Um, but then to answer your second question, like there's there's a, like a low cost of uh, that you would pay and then a high cost. So when you think about investing, um, you want to measure what you're being charged against like the potential that you have to grow your money. So if I invest in like a mutual fund and the potential that I have to grow my money is like 7% or 8% or 9% or 10%, that is the maximum that I want to measure 
the feet against. Um, now within in uh, the cost that you're looking for, they're always going to be percentage wise. So there's going to be like a 1% fee or a 0.0% fee. Like, um, and I, I think a lot of times in the investing world, when you're looking at an asset or a mutual fund and um, somebody will say like, oh, uh, it's only a 1% fee, our brains will automatically compare 1% to 100% which at the, yeah that doesn't seem meaningful but if your your gauge is like 7 to 10% growth 1% of 7 or 1% of 9 even is a lot more significant than 1% of 100 so on the low end expense ratios which is essentially the fee that you pay for like a mutual fund um, they should be like as close to zero as you can get so 0.15 0.05, that would be considered low. Whereas if you find a, a mutual fund that is charging you 1%, that's considered high. Now that's the cost that you pay on the actual asset. If you hired a financial advisor, you would also have to pay him for their services and their service is picking the funds for you. So now it's like, okay, now we have two types of fee. One fee is the asset manager that you're paying a fee to, and then a financial advisor you're paying to actually pick those funds for you. So you have to be just really careful and aware that like you will be paying fees if you, you know, ask someone to like do this for you. And so being like um, just aware of like what those fees are, how much am I paying you? What is this going to cost over the course of me investing um, are just really important questions to ask as you're you know, kind of learning and putting this all together. Expense ratios are very important, which are, as you mentioned, the fee for the mutual fund. When you're looking at different accounts on the website for Vanguard, Fidelity, all these that are not sponsored, it's <laughs> this episode. Um, it'll show you that. It'll show you that, right? Like, it'll show you what expense ratio is. And typically, under 1% is considered cheaper, I guess, quote unquote, and then anything of one and above is considered pretty expensive. So you've sent mutual funds a couple of times and I, I know that you just defined it a little bit as, as a basket of goods, a basket of stocks. And there are terminologies out there that are mutual funds, index funds, ETFs. And so again, they could scare people. And I love how you get a story of like with M&Ms, I think. <laughs> I think I shared it on that uh, IG, but just like, I guess using that the same analogy, can you explain to us what are mutual funds and how is it different than like a stock or maybe even to start like, what is a stock, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So um, I use the M&M example a lot because I feel like it's such a great, it just visually helps us see like, okay, this is how it all kind of works. Um, so to start, a stock is just you buying a piece of like ownership of a company. So I guess so like how this all works is companies need more money to grow. They need capital to invest in um, employers, innovation, you know, they, they need money. And a lot of times, um, they, they run out of that. And so they open themselves up to investors like, hey, will you contribute and give me money and I will use that money to grow my company and then I'll share the profits with you. So that's kind of like the basis of how like you even buy stock from a company is, is essentially you saying, yep, here's money. I own a stock of this and now we're both in it together. Um, so 
uh, when I think about explaining investing, I essentially say, okay, these stocks, if we make these like M&Ms, right? Like they're just individual M&Ms. Um, then you can decide like, all right, I want this M&M, I want this M&M. And if you've ever been to the M&M store in New York City and you like know like how overwhelming it is, there's so many different types of M&Ms, there's different colors, there's different flavors, there's different like all types. And to go in there and like pick the right one can feel like really overwhelming because you're like, I don't, what does that even mean? It's the same thing I think people feel when they're investing in the stock market. They're like, which one do I pick? Like that's probably one of the most common questions. And um, the thing is, you don't have to necessarily pick one singular M&M and then find another singular M&M. You can actually buy a product that was created to make that process easier. And so this is what I compare to those packets, you know, those like M&M packets that you get at like a gas station that has like a bunch of M&Ms in there. That would be like a bundle of M&Ms. And, and that's what I would say is a mutual fund. So a mutual fund is just a bundle of stocks that are packaged together to make it easier and more convenient for you to start investing. And so this just like allows you to diversify very quickly, right? So instead of you buying a hundred different M&Ms to diversify your portfolio, you just buy the packet and boom, like you already have diversification, it's convenient and it's great. Um, and so now to go a layer deeper, these packets of M&Ms are put together differently. So if I'm actively thinking of a way to like combine these M&Ms and, you know, put these stocks together in a way that I feel like is going to just like go really well and like, um, you know, all these stocks are going to give me a great return. That's me actively like investing and managing that M&M. And so that would be like an actively managed mutual fund. Now, if my way of putting that um pack it together is a little bit more passive. I'm just kind of looking to see what uh, an index has been doing, which we can now explain like what an index is. If I'm just looking at like what has been done before, what's the, you know, what's like a standard procedure, what's, you know, I'm, I'm essentially just copying and pasting a strategy, then I'm passively putting together this mutual fund. So that would be a passively managed mutual fund. So those are like two different types of mutual funds that um, people invest in. Um, passively managed mutual funds are called index funds because they are put together by copying and mimicking an index. So I don't want to like say more because I feel like it's like hard to explain one thing in investing without like then being like, okay, well, we just opened up this door. So that we have to like talk about that. <laughs> um, but I think that like, yeah, I love the the example of the M&Ms and the different packets. I think that's very good. And you brought in that reciprocation and, and that it's important. And I guess just to highlight vacation is important because you don't know where, let's say the market, where the market's going to go. So if you wouldn't put all your hopes and dreams on that red M&M &M, and then for some reason we cancel the color red. <laughs> <laughs> You're done. <laughs> right? And then that, that M&M or that asset is no longer valuable, right? So, and then if you had it, the yellow and the greens and the brown, like those assets would be hopefully continue to be worth something in the market. And so I guess to bring it to like the COVID experience that we all been through, right? So let's say what company went down during, I guess like, I'm sorry, like restaurants, let's say. Carnival, I know is one. What is it? Carnival, like cruises. Yeah. Like, so let's say you invested all your money in Carnival Cruises companies 
thinking, oh yeah, everybody's going to want to go on vacation 2020 because it's such a great number, such a great year. And then <laughs> nobody's going on these cruises or airlines, like if you invested heavily on airline, like Delta had zero profit at some point in 2020. Oh, wow. Like, yeah. And so... So you put all your money in one basket, oh, your your eggs in one basket, and that basket broke. Then you're you're done, right? And as opposed to like if you diversified, if you bought stocks in a toilet paper company, <laughs> you'd be millionaire, <laughs> right? You probably made a lot of money. Or if you bought off of like Zoom, like Zoom grew so much during that time. That's uh, why this this um, analogy of having different, a packet of different colors, it's, it's so valuable because you want to diversify, but you don't want to spend the mental energy to be like, okay, what companies do I have to choose? Mm. And you could choose this mutual fund and a mutual fund could be a sort of like a, a packet to follow the same thing, a packet uh, of all the companies and let's say in technology or a packet of uh, all just the whole market, just a little bit of the entire market, or it could be like a packet of all communication companies or all electric vehicle companies. And so then they can be divided by industries, like company size. And so you can get that diversification in that. So again, it's, it's a bit, it, it can be very complex, but I think if we start opening our mind and to to know it, that this are because this they can sound scary, but they're not like just yeah, they're they're not scary terms once you start to like dig a little bit deeper into them. Yeah, um, and I think also the biggest thing that a lot of people put pressure on themselves is um, pick like thinking that they have to pick the right thing right away. And for me, I invest. I started investing with a target date fund, which was great. And it got me started, got me super comfortable. I was like, oh, my money's growing. This is great. And so like mentally, it like helped me see. And then I got more curious and I was like, all right, how do I get this? What, what else can I buy? And then I just got more comfortable. And then I moved into index funds. And then like after I built out like my index funds that I wanted to invest in, I was like, all right, what what sectors of the stock market do I, you know, see potentially wanting to put more money into? But that process is like, three years of me like wanting to learn and like I didn't figure that all out as soon as I started so I think something really important is give yourself permission to like have your best educated guess of like this is what you know I'm gonna put my money on and then realizing like you can you're all you're gonna continue to optimize you know pivot change and get better and better at it the more that you learn the more comfortable you get like you're just gonna get better and better um so yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the reason folks are fearful of not having the right account, not having the right investment is because they fear losing their money. Yeah. And which we can come back to the first thing you did was save and the importance of an emergency fund. So I guess we you talk a little bit about how we can alleviate that fear of losing the money by not making the right decision and tie it maybe to like the emergency fund. Yeah. So I think having, again, like your financial safety net in place and kind of having a money environment or experience where money feels safe is key in order for you to like thrive with money. That's why I feel like safety with money has to come before thriving with money. And so part of that safety is creating an emergency fund, creating like just a safety net amount of money, like set aside in your savings account that is for emergencies and to kind of keep you um, just, yeah, having a safety net. 
And so for me, I had that in place. And then when I had extra, I was like, all right, what do I do with this? Like, what do, how do I make this grow? And so, um, that gave me like having that set up, having that emergency set, um, aside just gave me confidence that like, if I were to lose this a thousand dollars, cause I started investing with a thousand dollars into this target date fund, um, I would be okay. Now, like physically, yes. Mentally, I definitely was like, oh my gosh, this would be the worst. Like, like there is going to be a lot of drama. But I also had to trust myself. Like I did the research. Like I read all these articles. Like I, I, I'm not blindly throwing money into like this thing that someone told me, you know, like I'm really think legitimately this is the right way. Um, so I think just a, a combination of like one, I've created stability and safety in my emergency fund and my, you know, have a saving set aside. And also like I created stability and certainty, like the best that I can by the research that I've done, by the people that I've asked. And now like even having those two things, like there are still going to be nerves when you do something you've never done before, but continuing to like step in that direction and like giving yourself like permission to move forward even if you are uncertain knowing that you might like you know depending on when you start investing right because if somebody started investing in February of 2020 like <laughs> they essentially went through like oh my gosh I just lost all of this money but if you also know like you will lose money in the stock market but unless you sell your investment, you actually haven't lost it. Like stick, stick with it. Like your, your, your money is going to grow if you stay in the game long-term. And I'm thinking, I'm talking like five, 10, 20, 30 years. So. Yeah. That's key. When you're looking to invest in the market, you can't think about it. Like, oh, I want a hundred percent return next month. It's not going to work because the market will fluctuate. Like in the last few years, it's been down, up, down, up. And like now a lot of people are looking at their balances and it's like down for many of us, thousands of dollars. And we're like, like, as long as you don't freak out and you wait out the bad times and you don't need that money because you have your emergency fund plan for you, you, you will benefit a lot from investing in the market. But if it's money that you need tomorrow because of an emergency, then yeah, you will probably, you don't have any losses until you sell your investments. So let's move a little bit into parents and retirement. So many of us, again, are first gens. Parents did not work in any jobs that have a 401k available to them. Many of us didn't really know what our Ross was until later. And just to share a little story about my parents, particularly my dad, I didn't know what a 401k was until like I graduated from college. And my dad worked for a grocery store that actually offered a 401k, but it got sold to another company. And that second company that bought it did not offer a 401k anymore to its employees. And I remember Lorna was excited what a 401k was to learn. And then I asked my dad, I was like, hey, do you have a 401k? Does your company offer it? And he's like, oh yeah, but I, I, I didn't want them to take my money. So I didn't say no. And I was like, no. <laughs> and so, and then later on, we, we found out that this that somebody that I purchased that grocery store no longer offered 401k to their employer. So he lost a lot, like an opportunity there, right? That's what he's retirement. And as a daughter who I will be my parents' retirement, it's hard because I realized that put tremendous pressure on me not to only think about generational wealth from like looking forward, but also looking back and making sure that this 
wealth that I want to create takes care of me, takes care of my parents, takes care of whatever future generation comes after me. And so that was really stressful. And I stressed that for many, many years about it. And I lost sleep. It was a very, very stressful time for me. And one way that I decided to sort of alleviate that stress was to actually start investing for them. And so I'll share them is like, yeah, I, I, I grew in my career. I started making six figure. And so I opened a Roth IRA for both my parents. And I was like, you know what? I'm not, this, this is going to come out of my paycheck anyway. <laughs> so might as well start investing for them now. So I was putting like, you know, little every, every month or every couple of weeks or whatever. And then eventually, because I knew I, I needed their social security to open a Roth for them, right? They were like, what is this account? And I, and I was like, oh, this is for your retirement. And at first they will tell me like, oh, I could buy a car with that. I'm like, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> this is for your retirement. And so it took a lot of conversation. It took a lot of explaining what it is. It took a lot of me sharing like, hey, I'm, I'm stressed out because like, you know, like I will be financially responsible for you once you retire. Um, and then it got to a point where my dad was like, wow, can I contribute to it? And like, he started contributing to it and he, oh, he was open now to under, to what investing is, the benefits of investing. And so he, a couple of years ago, he started investing every week to this account. And I was like, oh my God, I feel like better. It's not now, like, I'm not going to say it's like so much money that it's going to cover everything, but it does alleviate some of the pressure. So I wanted to share that with the audience because I know like, so many of us are responsible for parents as we, as they get older. So what has been your experience? How about your parents prepared for their own retirement? What kind conversations have you had uh, with them about it? Yeah. So my parents, I have really didn't talk to them about this, like about retirement and just like a lot of money things, but they um, were able to buy real estate when the market crashed and you know the time where everything was low so they they had like two great deals and they just like were able to do that so now those have become a, like a steady source of income for them in retirement because both of them are retired um so and I like didn't really like I at the time when I was in high school I didn't really understand fully like how this is all working I remember once my dad like had us all sit down and have a nice fancy dinner. And he talked about like interest rates and he's like, I brought it down like three points. And I was like, I have no idea what that means. I'm in eighth grade. <laughs> but now when I like, he told, tells me the story, I'm like, wow, you usually saved like hundreds and thousands of dollars on interest. And he was like, yeah, it was a great deal. Nobody like understood it at the time. And I was like, I'm sorry, I get it now. Um, so they, I think had like just really unique opportunities. And because of that, we're able to like have that. Um, so now the challenges that I'm having to think through are like, you're not going to be able to like manage a property in your 80s though. So we still have to think through like, what is a property manager going to cost? Like after that, like, do you, are you going to have, like how much are you going to have left over? Are you going to keep the house? Like things like that are still kind of like, like for me, questions that I want answered. And so the conversation really started during the pandemic. Um, my dad got stuck in Peru uh, during COVID. 
yeah, he was visiting um, in January and was supposed to come back sometime in March, but like obviously he couldn't. And so he was there until like June. Um, and so I had to come back home to help my mom. I work remotely. So thankfully, like it, it wasn't a big deal. So I came home and like helped my mom. She was also remodeling her kitchen. It was like dumpster fire. <laughs> we had like it was yeah I like helped her with that and um he she was like can you help me with these like bills organize them and I was like sure and so I got them on like online payments because my dad was like still sending checks so that really helped me see like okay here's your financial picture here's what you guys are paying for this for that and so after that I got a sense of like okay this works um but I now I'm like starting to look at like the business of real estate and how does that actually like do you guys have enough for the business and your personal like because not all the money that comes in is going to be take home like there's still things that you need to like you know account for so um so yeah I think like the biggest thing that really helped me um is just starting that conversation is and in if you're kind of sitting in a position where like I haven't talked to any, my parents about this like I would start with a light like oh what do you guys see yourselves doing um and just kind of get that conversation started and then slowly and surely you'll start talking maybe about like where do you want to live where do you see yourself living do you want to live with me like um that will give you more insight as to even maybe their expectations um, and then help you start kind of seeing like, okay, to what level, how, what capacity am I going to be able to like help and, um, you know, assist my parents. So for me, it's that I'm kind of in that right now where I was like, I'm trying, I'm just trying to get more information and trying to like learn more about like how it's all going to work. Um, and then also realizing that it is going to be challenging because I think your parents are your parents. And this is one of those situations where the roles are a little bit reversed where it's like you're like, I know you're my dad, but like, I also like see all of these financial things that we need to talk about. And you don't want to talk about them right now, but I, we need to talk. <laughs> so kind of like navigating that, um, I think is just really helpful, but that's a little bit my, of my story. It's not, thankfully not, I don't feel like as much pressure, but I still do feel like there's things that I have to explain, like a will and what is that and how should you do that? And like, you know, there's still things that I have to navigate and like just help them feel more comfortable. Similar to your dad where at first was like, what is that? And now it's like, oh, okay, I'm on board. Like, this is great. Did you get your parents to do a will? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I am in the process. Like my dad is definitely on board. My mom has a little bit more questions of like, what? why do you me? <laughs> I love my mom says she's like you want to be dead already I'm like oh my god <laughs> I want to say yeah no it just and I tried to explain like there's just you know benefits and costs associated with not having a will and all these different things and so yeah I think it just takes it might be that and so like kind of gauging like how they're responding is also good because it's like okay I know when to push a little and when to like back off because I've I don't even feel like that's the reason, but it's like, no, these, these documents are important. Like it really helps with preserving wealth and like, you know, all those things. So, yeah, that's a whole other topic. I've tried my dad some more. My mom is like, you don't say, you don't talk about bad things because you call them into the picture. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's let's see like five questions from the audience. So one of the questions that was shared with me was like, what are some resources you recommend to get started in our personal financial journey? 
Yeah. So I would say that one of the, um, the, the best resources that helped me learn a lot with investing is this YouTube channel. Um, in, it used to be called investing with Rose, but now it's called it's your girl Rose. Um, that YouTube channel is great. So if you are like, Hey, I need to like, just learn the basics of investing or even like a little higher level of like the difference between a mutual fund and an index fund. Like she has a really great content. So I would definitely, you know, if you like love YouTube do that. Um, Instagram, I talk about, you know, budgeting, saving, creating a money system to really organize your finances. And then like, if you want like a more of like a one-on-one coaching relationship. I also offer that with investing in money. Um, But then I would say it really just depends on like, how do you, what's your way of learning? For me, it's podcast and YouTube. Mm -hmm. So I would just like learn everything through that. Um, Mostly YouTube for for saving and investing. The Budget Mom is also really great on YouTube. Um, Those are the, the Budget Mom and um, Investing with Rose are the two main like, resources I use to learn a lot. Um, but again, it's always going to be like, who do you vibe with? Right. Cause it's the information is all the same. We're all saying the same things, but it's like how people say it and their stories and like, like the context behind it is going to be the thing that really helps you and motivates you. So I would say, yeah, just find someone that you really resonate with that you, you know, share in values with, um, that's ultimately going to like help you stick with it long-term as opposed to just like information. Right. So. Yeah. We always say, don't kill the messenger, but in this case, kill the messenger, but don't hurt. <laughs> like if the messenger does not resonate <laughs> move on to a different messenger because the message you need to hear the message and you need to learn the message but the messenger might not be speaking your language and that's okay it's just not your messenger and then they'll find another messenger that it makes more sense to you right so all right second question so how do how to prioritize paying credit for debt versus building wealth so many of us have started our debt and then we're like do i pay off my debt first do i start of that same like how do i know what to do Yeah. So with this question, I want to talk a little bit about interest rates and return on an on investments. So like right right now, let's say let's say you have your emergency fund, right? Like you have that set in place and you're like, okay, I have some credit card debt that I want to pay off. um, And I also want to start investing. How do I which one do I do first? So the thing that you want to consider is that like where will your money have the most impact? So let's say you have $1,000 to put towards either investing or put towards your credit card debt. You want to consider if I put it towards my credit card debt, like I'm essentially, uh, my money, the impact that it will have is it I will lower the amount of interest that I'll have to pay on this balance. And, you know, that will be this this balance will cost me less over time. Now, the impact that it'll create when you invest it is that it'll grow um, on average seven, seven to 8% after inflation. So you have to think about it and compare interest rate. Like if this balance is costing me like 20% APR, because that's the interest rate of my credit card. And that's how much like my money is costing me. So think about it almost like a negative interest, like it's working against you. And putting my money in the market is growing at 78%. Then you kind of see like, okay, does it actually make sense for me to use my money to like invest right now? Or does it make more sense for me to pay off this thing that's costing me a lot of money? So that would be like the thing that I would compare. Now, 
like some years, the stock market returns 29%. And so in that year, like it actually would have been better for you to invest if you know you're paying 20% or 18% on your credit card debt. The thing is, we don't know when that's going to be. Like it just, like some years is a great year to invest, others is not. And so that's where it kind of becomes a little bit of a personal decision. Um, you can always split it. You can always say, okay, 500 here and 500 there. Again, there's no right or wrong answer. It's all just going to be like, honestly, what do you want to do? And what do you feel like you're going to do long-term? And if it's if it's stressing you out not to invest, invest a little and then also pay off your debt, right? Like get the best of both worlds because if you feel like you're, if you feel like you created both and scenario with your money, like both I can pay off debt and invest and you feel really good about it, you're going to keep doing it over and over and again. But if you're like, oh, I have to pay off this debt because but then also you're feeling like behind because I'm not investing. Again, you're creating a, a scenario and environment with money where you don't feel safe and you're just gonna be like, I don't, I don't deal with it. So all that to say, there is no right or wrong answer. Strategically, we want to look at the interest, but like whatever you feel like you can do long-term, do that. Yeah, and I think actually doing both, it's, it's such a great advice because um, you don't have to do both equally, right? Like in the example of $1,000, it doesn't have to be 500, 500, it could be 100, 900, like pay that or even $25. So <laughs> invest in the lowest $25. Um, so, all right, which kind of ties to the next question. Um, how do I start investing in index funds? Can I invest whatever amount I want or does it have to be a certain amount to begin with? Yeah, so you can start with whatever amount that you want to start with. Um, I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions is, is people think investing is almost kind of like a, kind of like a one-time thing. Like, oh, I invested $5,000 and then I'm going to see if it grows. But really investing is like a monthly thing. Like every month, just like you pay your car insurance or your rent or mortgage, you're also investing. Um, and so this number like that you invest every month can be as little as like $10 or $5 a month or as high as 500, 1,000 to, you know, however much you're wanting to put in. Um, so it really just depends. Like how much do you feel like you can make room for in your money plan, like your monthly money plan, um, and then start there. And then every year you want to challenge yourself, right? Like if this year was $100, can next year be 200? Like, can I make that work? Like, you know, so you always kind of want to start where you feel again, like you can do this and it's sustainable and then build from there. Um, but it doesn't have to be, you know, a thousand. The reason it was a thousand for me is because the asset that I wanted to buy had a minimum amount of a thousand. And so that might be something that, you know, you see, you're like, oh, but the asset that I want to buy does have a minimum of 3000 or a thousand. Then you would save that and invest that. But after that, it could be like, all right, I bought it. Now I'm just buying $100 worth more of this asset every month or 50 or whatever that number is for you. So yeah, it could be any number. Yeah. And I think that's key. So when just for the members of the audience, when you're looking at the asset, the mutual fund, the index fund, the ETF, look at what the minimum amount is. And there's some that are high. I'm not going to lie. There's some that are like thousands of dollars, but there's some that are low that you could start with $100 or even less. And so, for example, when I started investing for my parents, there was one that I said, like, you have to start with $3,000. And I was like, that's not going to happen, right? So I picked a, a fund that was lower, and that was, let's say, $500. I was like, you have to start with $500. Fine. I started with $500. And once you started, you can do, now I do as little as $25. Like, I just put a little bit of $25 on a regular basis, and 
you just need that that minimum fund like at the beginning and, and yeah if there's zero or like one dollar funds out there i'm sure there are if you google it but um it's it's uh you can really start with those as little as possible you just have to make sure that that you meet the minimum yeah and even now fidelity i believe charles and Schwab does it too um they have what is called partial shares hmm. You don't necessarily even have to buy a whole share. Like it really could just be like, I want to invest $10 every month. And because those particular brokers allow you to like do that, you don't even need a minimum anymore since they do the partial share. So that's also good um, to know if you're like, I want to start with a, a low amount, that might be the broker you do business with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so last question, what are some red flags to look for when starting to invest? Um. So one of the red flags I would say is if somebody tells you it's not a big deal, it's just a 1% fee, <laughs> it is a big deal. A 1% fee is significant. So I, that would be a red flag if like a financial advisor told me that because then it's like, okay, that's not necessarily the most accurate representation. So what else might you be not being the most accurate about? Um, the other thing I would say is um, like right now there's a lot of like crypto, um, like scams and a lot of like, and not to say that those, uh, you know, assets are not good. Um, I don't know. I don't know too much about them, but I think, um, start with what you feel like is, uh, comfortable and don't feel like you have to like rush to, okay, I invested in this. Now I got to do this. Now I got to get an NFT. Now I, you know, like, Start with like a foundation basis of the stock market and then start adding from there. And then just like with anything, like if you feel like it's too good to be true, like if someone's promising you like a 50% return or, you know, an 80% return of your money, um, just kind of be familiar with like the average rate of the stock market is somewhere around seven to 10%, you know, depending on before inflation or after inflation. Um, and so if that's kind of what the stock market's doing, um, if someone's saying like, oh, you know, do this, I'm going to triple your money in like 21 days. It's like, okay, but how, if the stock market only can give me this much, if real estate can only give me this much, like, what are you actually, you know, doing and promising? So just big, bold promises that are like, these don't, don't even align with like average growth of the stock market, I'd say as another one. Um, but yeah, I'd say those two are kind of like the big ones, um, that I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to similar to your point, like if you're ask questions, like they're working for you, whoever you're working with, right? Like if it's a financial person, um, and they, if they're feeling attacked or offended because you're asking questions, probably not the right person <laughs> to work yeah. there. Um, all right. So, and then I know we touched on little, we talked a little bit of milestones and I want to be respectful of your design. I don't know if you want to give us a little bit of an overview of what uh, money milestones we should be considering as in this journey, um, you know, as we wrap up this conversation. Yeah. So I'd say the financial milestones that I recommend is number one, do you have an emergency fund? So I recommend a one month emergency fund of your living expenses. That's kind of like your baseline saving uh, savings to have in case anything happens, like you have that to catch yourself. From there, another money milestone is like paying off credit card debt. Like the, you really want to get rid of like any high interest debt, debt, high interest would be like anything above 7%, um, getting that down to zero. Then 
uh, another financial milestone would be like, okay, now I'm actually having um, a uh, emergency fund that's like three to six months. So you're essentially kind of stacking like a mile. It's almost like you get to a new level on Mario, right? Like level unlocked. It's like, okay, I created stability. I paid down a uh, um, debt that's costing me a lot. I created more stability by a higher emergency fund. Another milestone is I started investing for retirement. And then um, the next milestone is like, all right, now we're going to save for larger purchases. So like a, a mortgage or a house that maybe you want to buy later, or, you know, maybe you're starting a family, you need to like, you know, save for that. Maybe um, you're getting married and you want to start saving for a wedding. Now you've kind of created space in your, in your budget, your money plan to allow for those like bigger ticket life event moments. Um, and then the third thing I would say is, uh, diversify like your investments. So once you've kind of gotten into, um, you know, the stock market, is real estate something that you want to explore and dive into? Do you see yourself, uh, you know, starting a business? Like what are some other vehicles of wealth that you feel like you can use and leverage depending on your personality and um, your, you know, your interests? And I would say the, the, the thing that makes those milestones possible is to have always an income plan. I think a lot of times we're really passive about the, our income plan. And I think that's something that we're like, we need to be a little bit more active about like, what is my plan this year to grow my income? In what ways do I see myself doing that? What, like, what promotions can I like, you know, be on the lookout for? What skill sets do I need to learn? Who do I need to like connect with? Like, there's so much that we can do to always be mindful of how to grow our income. And I think that being more active and diligent on that is just going to allow you to hit those milestones quicker and yeah, just in more in a more enjoyable way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One, one message I hear um, is that uh, from a savings and cutting expenses perspective, you can only cut so much, but like oh. grow your salary, you can grow your income um, on a higher rate than you can count. Like you still need to live and you still need to spend money living, but you can grow your salary a lot more. Yeah. Thank you, Andrea. This has been such a insightful conversation. I know we have talked a lot of, a lot about financial concepts. I hope our audience finds this really helpful. If they want to connect with you, if they want some coaching from you, where can they go to connect with you? Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram. That's the platform that I'm at on the most. Um, it's at building.gen.wealth. Um, yeah, I show up on stories. I talk about investing. I talk about money system, savings, budgeting, all of those things. So if you're interested in learning more about money, um, definitely follow me. Come say hi. I love talking to, to people, love answering questions. So I think my goal is just to like empower women to to really feel capable um, with money. And yeah, it's exciting. So definitely come. Are you a small business looking to expand your digital footprint? Are you a small business looking to reach more of the Peruvian diaspora in the United States? Consider sponsoring an episode of Peruvians of USA. Peruvians of USA has launched its first sponsorship program. If you're interested, please visit peruviansofusa.com slash sponsors or send us a message on Instagram. Thank you for listening to Peruvians of USA. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and review an Apple podcast. It lets other Peruvians find the show. If you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Peruvians of USA. 
I'm looking forward to connecting with you there. All right, talk to you soon. Ciao.